In our first question, it says, did Revelation indicate anywhere when the close of probation occurs, and as in after the certain trumpet or loud cry event, so so to speak? Do you think it is before Satan's uh, last grand deception of impersonating Christ, or possibly shortly after he starts, or other? Thank you for the enlightening and refreshing ministry that inspires me to want to uh, be Jesus' friend and brings me closer to him each time I listen to and read your materials. Well, thank you for that uh, that affirmation there at the end. So my view is that um, the probation closes when every heart is either settled into the lies and hardened, where no amount of light and truth can can have any impress, and uh, and or everybody is sealed into loyalty that no trial or tribulation can shake them from it. And uh, regarding Satan's grand deception, I think that the um, image to the beast will form before probation closes because it is necessary for this worldwide counterfeit to draw people to decision. There will, be a, there will be a contrast between the righteous presentation of the gospel and the evil methods of the counterfeit, and that is part of what, call, what brings the probation close because everyone decides. Everyone decides, yes, I love this system of coercive force. No, I, I stand against this, and I, I love truth, liberty, and, and love. And uh, so I think as the events unfold, um, those those events ultimately lead people to those decision points, and it's the people's decision points. And when the when Jesus stands up from his ministry in heaven, he does so because he who is righteous is settled into righteousness and will be righteous still, and he who is wicked is settled into wickedness and will be wicked still. There is no heart left on earth that any amount of truth, love, and my intercessions will impact. They've closed and destroyed the faculties responsive to love and truth. The Holy Spirit can't reach them anymore. And that's really what, what closes it at the end. Why did Jesus say, Matthew 5, you've heard it said of times of old, thou shalt not kill. He himself is the one who wrote with his own finger in stone. Oh, I think, I think what you have heard it said of old times. Okay, yes, yeah, so, so Jesus is actually drawing a contrast to their rule-keeping and his principles. He's drawing a contrast. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says uh, to his brother, Raka, is answerable to Sanhedrin. But anybody who uh, says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, this is, this is Matthew 5. And so he's drawing a contrast between rule-keeping, external behavior, conformity. You've heard it said, do not murder, don't do the bad deed. I'm saying don't even have the desire in your heart to do it. So he's elevating and expanding the rule because those rules are given to very primitive childlike people. It's like telling your children, you're trying to explain them, but at some point you just tell your kids, just stay off the couch. (laughs) Right? That's the rule. Just stay off the couch. (laughs) Okay? No, take your shoes off. With, when you come in the house. But I don't have mud on them. So, the rule, take them off. And, and we have to deal with kids, okay? And so he's dealing with very childlike people with the rule, don't murder. But his real goal is to have a heart change so that it was never in the heart to murder in the first place. And think how sad the condition might be that you actually had to say that. If you, you're sending your kids off to school, first grade, second grade, third grade, and before you pack the lunch and you say, hey, have a good day. And by the way, don't murder anybody on the play- playground today. <laughs> I mean, that's a sad state of affairs if you actually have to state that, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's why he, he, he is drawing a contrast there. That's why he says it. Regarding Jesus' genealogy, it puzzles me why Scripture says Jesus will come from the line of Judah, which is Joseph, who is, which is through Joseph, which is not Jesus' blood. Can you help me understand this? I guess I don't understand why emphasis on Joseph 
since Jesus' genes came from Mary and, and the Holy Spirit? Uh, this is a very interesting question. Have you ever thought about that question before? So if you actually look, there's two genealogies for Christ, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and they're quite distinct and different. There's only a couple names that are even the same. They're quite different. And you can read various Bible commentaries as to why they're different. Um, the one in Matthew is, is likely his genealogy through Joseph, his adopted father. Okay? The one in, and, and if you read, the, the, the Bible writers say, um, Jesus, who was, who was thought to be the son of Joseph. They always say that, thought to be the son of Joseph, because he wasn't the son of Joseph. And it says right in the text. But in um, Jewish um, culture, when Mary married Joseph, then Joseph became, um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? The, 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 the legal father of Jesus, okay, through, through that marriage, okay? And uh, so in the um, genealogy in Luke, it is actually the genealogy through Mary. That's Mary's, um, and, and that's the difference. And so and it traces right back through Judah and, and David and so forth as well. So both families, Joseph and Mary, trace back through David and Judah all the way to, to Adam. And, and so it's, it's not really that, that big of a deal. Uh, did Ellen White not have understanding of design law? What she wrote in many places doesn't sound like she did. Uh, God will finally destroy rejectors of his grace, Great Controversy five, uh, 543. Uh, she had absolute incredible understanding of design law. Uh, and when you read questions like God will finally destroy the rejectors of his grace, um, that's a statement. You should read widely and say, uh, let me see where she describes describes how he destroys the rejectors of his grace. And when you read where she describes how he does it, I've got some quotes from her, if I can find where I put them. And this is what I always do. You have to go look things up. Um, when you describe how, let's see if I can find it. I, hmm. So this, uh, let's see. There's so many places she says this. Yeah, here's one. And this particular long quote, this is about several paragraph quote, was, was uh, written and sent to Uriah Smith in the 1890s, who was the editor of the Signs of the Times, and it didn't fit with the same idea that the, the questioner is asking about. Uh, Uriah Smith had the idea that God uses power to punish sin. We just went through class how infinite wisdom doesn't do that. Uh, and so she wrote this to him. He filed it in the, in the Signs of the Times files. What was lost in the 1950s, it was discovered in her handwriting. And... Uh, and published in the Selected Messages. You can find it first Selected Message 235. And the law of the Ten Commandments is not to be looked upon as much from the prohibitory side as from the mercy side. Its prohibitions are a sure guarantee of happiness and obedience. Pause. Parent says, you shall not play in the street. For the day you play in the street, you will surely die. <laughs> okay. Now, is that, is that to be looked upon as well, rules to keep me from freedom or is it to protect me from harm and injury? Okay? And so and when you harmonize with God's laws, you actually protect yourself from damage. So thou shalt not commit adultery. If you cheat on your spouse and your spouse never finds out, do you avoid damaging yourself or do you see your conscience hard in your heart? You have fear, you have anxiety, you have guilt, you have shame, you have all types of damage happening to you, even if your spouse never finds out and you never get a divorce. Isn't that right? You can't avoid this. So harmony actually protects you from damage and harm. 
And that's the only way health works. Its prohibitions are a guarantee of happiness and in obedience. As received in Christ, it works in us the purity of character. What's that describing? Function, reality, design that will bring joy to us through eternal ages. To the obedient, it is a wall of protection. We behold in it the goodness of God, who by revealing to men the immutable principles of righteousness, seek to shield them from the evils that result from transgression. Now notice what happened. This is the, blow your mind. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. That's design law. That's how reality works. Sin severs our connection with God, hardens our heart, corrupts our character. God does not have a tribunal until you broke a rule, so now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inflict guilt on you. Now I'm going to harden your heart and make you less loving. Now I'm going to use power to make you unhappy. God doesn't do that. Happiness and health only come in living in harmony with God and how he built life to operate. The law is an expression of God's idea. When we receive it in Christ, it becomes our idea. It lifts us above the power of natural desires and tendencies, above temptations that lead to sin. Great peace have they which love your law. Nothing will offend them. I found this to be true in my life. When I have really embraced not rules, back when I, back when I was a child, back when I was growing up, back when I was in school, and I thought, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. There was no peace. There was no joy. It, it was disgruntledness. When I understood how the law of love works, the law of liberty works, the law of exertion works, the law of worship works. When I've understood that's reality, I wanted to live in our... Life is better that way. There's more joy in it. There is no peace in unrighteousness. The wicked are at war with God, but he who receives the righteousness of the law in Christ is in harmony with heaven. This is design law. And I, I, I could go on all that. I have pages and pages and pages of her writing. I would encourage you to go read Christ's Object Lessons, read Steps to Christ, read Desire of Ages. Uh, pretty much everything she wrote after 1888, um, the Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, it's all filled with design law descriptions. It says, I was having a discussion with a young man, intern pastor, about why Moses struck the rock twice. His belief is that Moses was angry with the people, and he was reflecting the anger of God towards the people as well. So he, dub- he, he, he was doubly angry so that when he spoke to the people, he was acting out the judgments that God was slow to take. So Moses sinned because he was taking God's judgment into his hands. However, I read the passage of Scripture and expanded on it uh, the long and short of it helped him understand that it was his beliefs were wrong and Moses' anger, he misrepresented God to the people. And when I left, he had a different mindset on this matter and he realized that he was imposing on the passage something that was not there. So well done. Well done for taking him through the scripture and demonstrating that this assumption that he had is actually not in scripture. That's the way to do it. Trying to understand guilt. Read your blog, read your book, listened to your explanation. I still don't understand how guilt is a good example. Judas had guilt after run, uh, turning uh, in Jesus, which uh, is appropriate guilt, but it did not convict him to turn away from sin. He didn't repent or, or spend the rest of his life serving Jesus. Am I maybe confusing guilt and shame? Please elaborate so that you will, uh, it will uh, penetrate my thick brain. Thank you. 
So guilt and shame are not the same. Guilt has to do with a conviction of doing wrong, a feeling of fear of condemnation. Shame has to do with a dishonorableness, um, um, a sense of uh, humiliation, um, inadequacy. Uh, guilt has to do, and shame is a result of sin. And, and there's no redeeming value in, in shame. Guilt is a, is a therapeutic conviction, if it's appropriate guilt, that we are wrong and it is designed to lead us to repentance. However, just like with physical pain, physical pain to the body, if you touch a hot stove, the pain causes you to pull back quickly. If you do something wrong, the guilt should, is appropriate to cause you to stop doing what's wrong. People can ignore. People can um, damage the faculties that respond. And so I'm not sure that... Um, that I don't know that we have anywhere that Judas was under the conviction of guilt. I think he was, uh, Judas was disappointed and frustrated. And what I read in Desire of Ages is that he had a plan. And his plan was to manipulate Jesus through his betrayal into using power to take the throne of Judah and rule like the earthly government's rule. He was not a true convert to Jesus. He, he believed Jesus had power. He saw the miracles, saw the walking in the water, saw the raising from the dead. He, he envisioned a, a mighty, powerful ruler throwing off the Romans, raising the, uh, the, the, the killed soldiers back to life to go out and fight some more. And, and he had this plan to betray Jesus in such a way that Jesus would be forced to take the throne. And he thought he was smarter than Jesus. And in fact, he never really understood the principles of God's kingdom. And when he saw it, he was overcome with his failure and disappointed in himself and was overcome with shame and humiliation and went out and hung himself. But I don't think he ever came to repentance and said, wow, there's actually a better way. It's more like his system and his plan didn't work. So guilt, um, there can be appropriate guilt that we feel when we've actually done wrong, and there can be inappropriate guilt that we feel a feeling of guilt, but we've done nothing wrong. Inappropriate guilt is always based on a lie. We're believing something falsely. And inappropriate guilt is resolved by truth and changing what we think has happened. Appropriate guilt is resolved by actual repentance uh, and restoration with God through the Holy Spirit. Have you heard of Ken Ham built of the Ark replica? Uh, No, I haven't. And I haven't listened to this video that you're recommending. Uh, hello, Dr. Jennings. I've been looking into the decline of Christianity that is happening at a rapid rate and many reasons as to why people are leaving the church and Christianity in general. One of the factors is the course of grip of purity culture within the churches, people having mentioned that the church environment they were, uh, were in mentally uh, programmed and shamed people over a sexual uh, nature or <clears throat> sexual activity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My question is, how does one embrace the biblical principles of Christian living uh, avoid, uh, a, as avoiding lust and fornication while at the same time not causing shame, psychological damage? And, okay, but first off, by focusing where the focus is supposed to be. We are to fix our eyes on our sexual nature. That's what the Bible says, right? Fix our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And we have to come back to understanding design law. I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to my lecture in our... Um, God in the Church series, um, Growing Up in Christ, uh, The Seven Levels of Moral Decision-Making, listen to it. This type of stuff is just right now focused on the sexual behavior, this, this shame and guilt and behavior. It could have been focused on another addiction. It could be focused on Sabbath-keeping, that you don't keep Sabbath in the right way. It, this is a rules-oriented, coercive, pharisaical Christianity that identifies the, the sin of the, of the month 
and then pressures the the church into changing patterns of behavior uh, through human willpower and structure rather than converting the heart to Jesus Christ. Okay, This is what Paul talked about at the end of time, that the church would have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. And this is what you get with a legal, penal, legal religious system, that sins are legal problems that get you in legal trouble with the ruling magistrate and get recorded in books, and salvation is the process of getting the proper payment made in the book. I'll give this metaphor. I'll give this metaphor I use with teeth brushing, okay? Um, but you can use the same thing here with the sexual stuff. Parents will teach their children to brush their teeth. And when children are small, they'll do, uh, the children brush their teeth because there's a rule. And if, there's, if they don't keep the rule, they'll be punished. But most of us grow up to realize at some point before we leave home, before we even go to college, that the only reason that rule was there was because of the second law of thermodynamics, which is... If you don't put energy into a system, the system decays. And the reason we brush our teeth is to keep them healthy, not because there's a rule and we'll get in trouble with mom and dad if we don't, but because my mom and dads loved us when we were too childish to understand reality, they loved us enough to give us that rule until we grew up. That's, that's really the Ten Commandments and, and so forth. That's why the law in, in the New Covenant is written on the heart. We become like that, and we live those principles. We don't need the rule to tell us to do it anymore. But if you're so childish, you don't understand, you need those rules. So... Now, we're going to imagine a circumstance where a child grows up in a home where there's a rule to brush their teeth. But somehow they grow up and leave home and never understood the reason for the rules. They just had the rule. Brush your teeth or else you get in trouble. There's never a connection with gum disease, tooth decay, nothing. Just rule. And they did because they want to get in trouble. But now they go away to college. They live out on their own. They're in an apartment, finally free of all those rules. Finally free. Don't have to brush. And they quit brushing. Now, at first, they're a little nervous because they've done it their whole life. They're afraid something bad might happen. So after two or three days, they're kind of looking around to see if anybody's going to punish them. And sure enough, no punishment. No punishment. Woo-hoo, woo woo Knew I was free. Knew, knew I didn't have to do all those rules. And they forget about it for about six, eight, ten months. And then they call mom and dad. Mom, dad, you raised me better than this. You taught me to, how to live and brush my teeth. But, but I've left home and gone into wild living. I've quit brushing my teeth. And now I'm hurting, I'm suffering. Mom, I don't know what to do. I don't know. Don't worry, son. Don't worry. We have a, an expert at our church that knows how to deal with people who have left the reservation, who've gone into wild living and bringing you back into, into repentance. So I'm going to make an appointment. You meet with the pastor and the pastor says to you, yes, it's okay because Jesus came here 2,000 years ago and he brushed his teeth perfectly. And he has perfect dental records in heaven. And if you accept him as your substitute, then God will declare that you have healthy teeth even though you don't. You just need to believe here, leave here believing today that your teeth are healthy. And you claim that you believe that that's true and that God declares your teeth healthy and you leave in just as much pain with just as much suffering as when you arrived. That's penal substitution theology as practiced in American churches. And that's why these people leave, because they want victory over some of these weaknesses in their character, but the penal legal system is a fraud. It does not bring transformation. What we have to do is we have to bring people back to Jesus Christ where they are reborn with new hearts and right spirits and have new desires, and and the guilt and shame is taken away, and they're empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit to live victorious lives. And he fixes the damage that happened 
And if any of you, I know all of you have experienced this, when you are out of harmony, and Paul talks about this all through the New Testament, when we're out of harmony, living in dead and trespass and sin, now we have the joy of salvation. We have a new heart and raised spirit. We have the peace that passes understanding. The heart, the guilt, the shame is taken away. We're cleansed. We're new people. And then we're strengthened and empowered. So the only way to have victory over any type of sin, sexual sin included, is to have a, a new heart and right spirit reborn in the inner man. Uh, define the wicked. Doc Tim has briefly described who the wicked are with Bible text and brief understanding, but it leaves a lot of questions for me. If a person goes through life having a beer a few times a week, smokes some weed, smoke. Uh, smoke cigarettes, works a regular job, but does not seek worship in church. The person uh, acknowledges God, but that's as far as it goes. He or she, uh, he or she is a generally good person, always willing to do well in their career, teaching their children right from wrong. Is this wickedness? Okay. Before I answer, where is the entire focus here? It's behavior. This is very. This I'm, I had. I don't want to criticize here. But this is childish thinking. This is immaturity. This is Hebrews chapter 5. That though, though you ought to be on meat, you're still on milk. And those on milk are not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. They're still focused on the elementary or basic teachings. The, the, uh, the, the um, repentance of acts that lead to death. Repentance of acts, behaviors. The elementary, basic, childish level are don't do this and don't do that and be sure to do this other thing. But if that's where you're focused, you're not acquainted with righteousness. Righteousness is about a heart motive that's always seeking to do right and to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. This is what we are to do, enter in a faith and trust relation with God where our whole being is devoted to honoring him and what we do, and then there may be times that you would do something that almost everybody would tell you is a sin, like take your child to a mountain to sacrifice. Now, God delivered that, but for a while, that's what he thought he was going to do. Or go out and marry a prostitute. Hosea. And on the list goes. And I had a patient, and I'll, t- I'll, I'll, put, I'll put this to you. So the deeds ultimately are not the issue. It is the motive for doing the deeds. What's in the heart? Why are you doing it? So if I were to ask a question based on the rules approach to life and say, what do you think about somebody who is of the age of accountability, knows right from wrong, knows it's wrong to have sex outside marriage, who knowingly and willfully on a routine basis over and over again has sex out of marriage? That, would, that, would you consider that to probably be sin? Can't trick you guys up, can I? You're all silent. You're waiting to hear the... <laughs> it's unhealthy. It is unhealthy, but is it sin? I had a true, a true story. I had a patient many years ago whose uh, stepfather would molest her and her younger sister. And she was, I guess, eight or nine. The younger sister was four or five. And the younger sister would, would have these terrible panic attacks every day about the time dad was coming home. And because she loved her sister, the older sister, my patient, knowingly and willfully waited for dad and presented herself to him every day for that encounter to protect her little sister. 
Now, she could have avoided that. She knew what was going to happen. She could have ran and hid and, and let her sister take the brunt of it. But she knowingly and willfully participated to protect her sister. Was she sinning? No. Now, clearly the dad was, but was she sinning? No. 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 It's not the act in and of itself. It really does depend on the circumstances, the motive. This person was sacrificing herself in love to protect another. It's a horrible story, but it goes way beyond, way beyond rule-keeping. And many Christians, you look at the Pharisees in Christ's day, why were they mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath? They would rather someone suffer than break their rule. That's legal Christianity. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are God of love. And yes, in this world, there's so much evil, so much corruption, so much terrible, dire circumstances. We wish we were never placed in any of those circumstances. But we are sometimes, Lord, and we ask for your wisdom and your discernment to to transform and heal our hearts, that everything we do is devoted to giving glory to you and how we live and act. Our entire being presented to you as a living sacrifice and all that we do, that your kingdom will come on this earth and your will be done as it is in heaven. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.